Hey guys, for the first time in the last three years, I'm taking Christmas and New Year's off to spend some much needed quality time with my family. That being said, you know I cannot leave you hanging, so I reached out to the prosecutors and asked if we could drop the first episode of their series on Scott Peterson. Scott Peterson's case is one that caused a bit of controversy, especially after documentaries started coming out about whether or not he got a fair trial. In this six-part series by the prosecutors, they go through every single detail of the trial and some interesting facts about some of the documentaries that highlighted it. Give it a listen, check out the rest of the series, and let me know what you think. If you were on the fence before, do you still believe he didn't get a fair trial? I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And we are the Prosecutors. Today on The Prosecutors, on Christmas Eve 2002, Lacey Peterson, who was eight months pregnant with her first child, disappeared without a trace. Did her husband do it, or is he the unluckiest man alive? Welcome to this episode of The Prosecutors. I'm Brett, and I'm joined, as always, with my Ocha Revoltina. <laughs> Let me try that again. <laughs> I am joined. <laughs> I am joined, as always, by my Ocha Revoltina. Ocha Revoltina. Ocha Revoltina. That sounds good. My Ocha Revoltina. Co-host, Alice. Hey, Brett. Pull it together, Alice. I have to wipe away my tears first. Brett, that was such Sorry. a butchering of a beautiful language. Is that Russian? I know. I know. Is that Russian? It is Russian. It is Russian. It means charming. Charming oh, in Russian. Thank you to anything, Katie for that. I'm sorry, charming. Katie. That was terrible. <laughs> uh, uh, hi, Brett. <laughs> that was actually very hi, fitting Alice. for uh, we're recording this right after the Christmas vacation that we both took. And I think we're both a little bit loopy. <laughs> yeah, it's funny how exhausting Christmas vacation can be. But, you know, we're both going back into the office tomorrow. I don't think anyone's going to be there but us, though. Mm -hmm. So we're just committed that's to our right, jobs. Actually. <laughs> so we thought we'd start the work week off yeah. early by doing a podcast recording. Exactly. Exactly. We're so glad to be here with all of you. I also could have called Alice my not annoying co-host because she's awesome. <laughs> and we love her mean Apple reviews notwithstanding. But okay. so good to be back with you, Alice. It's been a while. Thank you, Brett. So good to be back. For the record, I had no idea that Brett put that on Twitter. <laughs> he told yeah. me after the fact. So thanks a lot for that, Brett. <laughs> well, 
I wanted to give everybody an opportunity to talk about how much they love you. And as you saw from the Twitter outpouring, they do love you. So there. <laughs> it was a good thing. No one agreed with them. So wow. you know, take that as a compliment. Well, but to the person who created an account to tell me how annoying I am, thank you. But also, oh my goodness, you did that like on Christmas Eve Eve. You must have been very yeah, sad and sad. alone. I felt bad. Maybe oh, after no. pandemic is over, annoyed by Alice, you can come over for a cup of coffee or, or something. Yeah. And I can truly annoy you in person. Let's all say a prayer for annoyed by Alice because they clearly, they're in a dark place and we want to lift them out of that dark place because that's what we're all about here at Prosecutor's Podcast. We lift you out of darkness with murder. <laughs> exactly. What What is more uplifting than a good... Story of murder and mayhem. We got a good one today and probably for the next few weeks. Do want to do a few housekeeping things first. So those of you who like to go straight into the case, go ahead and skip forward two or three minutes. A couple things. We have moved over to a new podcast host, Audio Boom. We were with Buzzsprout for the first, I don't know, eight months or so of our existence. Great platform for a new podcast. Recommend it to anybody. But... We had outgrown it because of you guys and, you know, all y'all telling your friends to listen and leaving all these great reviews. Um, we were at a point where we could start doing ads. So some of you may have heard ads on this show already. Not entirely clear when ads will start to run, but they are coming. I know some of you hate ads. We are going to, on our Patreon page, which a lot of you guys know about and some of you have joined, we are going to have an ad-free episode every week so if you hate ads and you can't stand ads if you support us on patreon you will get an ad free version we're really bad at patreon so we don't have like tiers or anything so you know it really doesn't matter how much you donate you'll get the ad free episode so i hope you guys if you want to do that feel free not to you can check us out there otherwise you'll be hearing ads for all your favorite products i'm sure in the weeks to come also we, as a lot of you guys know, because you've been buying some of the merchandise, we now have a store uh, where you can get a, a onesie for your for your baby or a coffee cup or a sweatshirt or any number of things. The proceeds from that, we're going to donate to the Cold Case Research Institute, which is Cheryl McCollum's outfit. Those of you who listened to that episode where we interviewed Cheryl McCollum, you know all the good work she does and she needs support. I know some of you have reached out to support her directly. We are going to do that as well. So anything you buy at the store, all the profits will go to support that very worthy cause. So I hope you will check that out as well. One scheduling note. Some of you have noticed this, but essentially we are moving to a one episode a week schedule, one case episode. It just it had become unfeasible for us to do more than one case episode a week. These take a lot of work to put together, to research, and sometimes we were spending two or three weeks to do a couple episodes on a story and then release them all in one week, and then obviously we need even more content for the next week. So to ensure that we always have an episode every week and that we don't kill ourselves and that we can do our jobs, which are getting busy again now that the pandemic is kind of winding down, I hope, we are going to do one case episode a week. It doesn't mean we'll only release one episode a week. There may be follow episodes, follow up episodes, or something along those lines. But, and I know a lot of you will be upset about this, but we're going to do one case episode a week going forward. 
And really, it's to ensure that we don't burn out and just kaput. So <laughs> it's for the longevity of the podcast. Yeah, it was when we started this, like I, we've told you guys this before, it was the middle of the pandemic. It was the middle of COVID. There wasn't a whole lot going on in our lives, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> like most of you, we were locked down and couldn't go anywhere. And so it was easy at the time to do that. And I'm glad we did that. I'm glad we have a lot of content out there. We've released, or we released in 2020, 50 episodes. And, you know, we started releasing episodes in May. So we essentially released the equivalent of an episode, an episode every week in essentially seven months. So that was just not something, we just couldn't keep up that pace. So we had also we recorded for two months before releasing any episodes. We had, yes. Yes, yeah, so that we were ahead and... Uh, yeah, like I said, I wish we could do this full time. Maybe one day we'll be able to do that and we'll be able to put out more content. But for now, you know, we promise you we will do everything in our power to make sure you have an episode every week and occasionally two. But we are going to try and stick to that schedule. So I think that's all of the business we have today. Alice, do you have anything you want to add before we get into the case? No, let's give the people what they want. Let's give the people what they want. And what the people want. Scott Peterson. Maybe not Scott Peterson, but they want a discussion of his case and the murder of Lacey Peterson. This is probably, other than Delphi, the most requested case that we have. And I mean, this one's right in our wheelhouse. There's a lot of, this is a trial, a very long trial, a prosecution. There's an appeal ongoing, even as we speak. And we think we can bring a lot to this, even though this is obviously a very well covered case. And the thing we're going to do, because it is so well covered, we are going to approach this case. We're going to go through the timeline. We're going to tell you what happened basically from just before when Lacey went missing to when her body was found and Scott was arrested. But then we're going to present this essentially as the prosecution's presentation at trial and the defense's presentation at trial. That's how we're going to approach this. You, When we talk about this, we're going to talk about what was actually presented at trial. And I think that get, will give you that will give you a different perspective than what you've heard from some of the other podcasts that have covered this, from some of the documentaries on this, because a lot of what they talk about is not the actual trial evidence. So we're going to cover some stuff that did not come up at trial, and we're going to talk about why it was not offered at trial. It's possible we will leave things out that you think are important, but we really want to approach this from what the jury heard, because what a lot of you have told us is that you think Scott is guilty, but you're not sure that he should have been found guilty. You're not sure that he's guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. So what we want to do and what we hope to do is to give you that perspective as if you were sitting in that jury box hearing the evidence that they were hearing from both sides. So join us for the ride, and then we'll see at the end what you really think and how it may differ from the coverage you've already heard. And this one could be a long ride. I will tell you, I looked at, I'm not going to say I read, but I looked at every page of the trial transcript. I skimmed through a lot of them. I tried to at least get the high points from what was an incredibly long trial. We're talking months and months and months here. All those documents are available online. There is a dedicated group of people who believe that Scott Peterson is innocent. And those people, to their credit, have really done a lot to bring all of the evidence, 
all of the trial transcripts, all of the appellate briefs, everything together in one place so that if you want to dive down this rabbit hole, you can spend as much time on it as you want. We'll link all that to the website. It was incredibly helpful, even if you don't agree with these folks and what they think happened. It is, it is an incredible resource that we just don't have in a lot of these cases, so I hope you'll take advantage of that. I also, <laughs> the briefs in the appeals in this case, I was looking at the state's brief, and it's over 500 pages long. Goodness so gracious. So there is a ton of information out there. There's no way to cover it all unless you want to suspend all of 2021 on this case, which you're not going to do, but we'll probably spend a good amount of time on it, and I think we'll hit all the high points. We are really looking forward to your thoughts on this. I know this is a long lead-up to this case, but I think it deserves a long lead-up. Prosecutorspod at gmail.com. That's the best place to get in touch with us. If you have thoughts on this case, hit us up with them. But with that, I think the best thing to do is to go ahead and dive into this case. As I said at the beginning, we're going all the way back to 2002, December 24th of 2002. So as we are recording this, just after the 18th anniversary of what happened in Modesto, California, which is about an hour south of San Francisco. And on that day, December 24th, 2002, according to Scott Peterson, he kissed his eight-month pregnant wife, Lacey, goodbye before heading off for the day. Lacey was going to mop the house and then walk the dog while Scott was going to play golf. But it was cold that day. So instead, Scott decided to take his new boat out for a spin. Rather than taking the boat to one of the many lakes around his hometown of Modesto, California, Scott headed out to San Francisco Bay, about an hour and a half drive away from his office, his warehouse that he had. He was a fertilizer salesman, um, and that's where he kept his boat. He motored around the bay for an hour or so and then headed home. But when he arrived, Lacey was gone, and she'd never be seen again. Not, that is, until her body and the body of her unborn child, Connor, washed up on the edge of the San Francisco Bay, not too far from where Scott had been fishing that day. Scott was arrested for his wife's murder, but did he do it? That's the question we are going to attempt to answer over these next few episodes. All right, so... That is a pretty short synopsis, but the timeline here is important and it's lengthy. Let me say one thing about the timeline before Alice dives into this. This timeline comes predominantly from one of the Scott Peterson defense websites. We did that on purpose, really, because there's a lot of different ways you could put this timeline together. But this timeline, with a few exceptions that we'll note as we go through it, is essentially, I think, the most pro Scott Peterson timeline you could have. So we'll see approaching it from this timeline, how that works out in the end. 
Right. And this gives the best benefit of the doubt, you know, to Scott Peterson as well. So let's start with Scott Peterson, since he is the man that attention was turned to right away when Lacey Peterson was reported missing on Christmas Eve 2002. So Scott Peterson was born in San Diego, California, to a fairly well-to-do family. Um, Peterson was a a good athlete. He showed early promise as a golfer, and he actually ended up being Phil Mickelson's teammate in high school and at Arizona State. Peterson eventually transferred out of Arizona State, either because he didn't like the competition or because he got kicked off the team. That depends on who you ask. He transferred to Cal Poly, and there is where he met Lacey Roca. Their first date was a deep sea fishing trip. Oh, the irony. Because Lacey was head over heels for Scott, and it wasn't long after she met him that she told her mother she'd met the man she'd marry. And they did get married. After a few years and a lot of events in between that you guys probably won't care about, the two of them moved to Modesto, California. And in June of 2002, Lacey discovered she was pregnant. So that brings us to October of 2002, only a couple months before Lacey would go missing. And in October, Peterson attended a trade show in Atlanta, Georgia, where he met a lady named Sean Sibley. Peterson started flirting with her. uh, And at some point, and I'm not sure exactly how one segues into this conversation but at some point he starts discussing her favorite sexual positions with her sibley testified and we'll talk about this more later and and goes into detail about this conversation and recall at this point lacy is probably about four five months pregnant at some point sibley tells peterson that she has a fiance and that her fiance is her soulmate and so she's not interested in any kind of relationship with Peterson. Peterson tells her that he once had a soulmate, but he'd lost her. He also tells Sibley that he is tired of one-night stands, and she suggests that her friend, Amber Fry, might be perfect for him. Fast forward to November 20th, 2002, and on that day, Peterson and Amber Fry meet at a bar in Fresno. Before going to dinner, they went to Peterson's hotel room and had champagne and strawberries, which Peterson had brought with him. Peterson had also reserved a private room in the restaurant for their date. And things between Peterson and Fry move quickly because on Monday, December 2nd, Peterson visited Fry and her daughter at their home near Fresno. Peterson previously told Fry that he wanted to meet her daughter. Uh, At this visit, Peterson brought groceries to make dinner and brought a gift for Fry's daughter. When Fry mentioned that she intended to keep the cork from a bottle of wine she and Peterson shared that evening as a memento, Peterson told her that there would be many more corks to come. Later, he and Fry had sex. He spent the night at Fry's home. And the next day, Peterson picked up Fry's daughter from school. And I think, can we just stop here for a second? Yeah, that's like, cool. <laughs> you know, he like basically just became dad to Fry's daughter. Yeah. 
I mean, you you said it right. I mean, things moved quickly here. It's November 20th when they had their first date. And then 12 days later, he's picking up her daughter from school. This is this is a whirlwind romance. To be honest, Brett, I think you are listed as my ch- child's like daycare emergency pickup. But I don't even know if I'd ask you to pick my kid up. That's a very, uh, it's, it's entrusting someone with your child. It's someone you've known for not even two weeks. Yeah, I mean, if you were laying dead on the side of the road, maybe, right? But <laughs> just to like, hey, can you pick up my child for me? I mean, that's... Yeah, that's a that's a huge level of trust, and it's not the level of trust one would expect in twelve days. And I think Amber Fry has talked about this sometimes. That Peterson was—I mean, he is charming. He is a very charming and charismatic person, and he very quickly brought Amber into his life and made her trust him completely. And I'd like to note. This first visit to Fry's home, notice that he doesn't just bring takeout or bring a pizza or something. He does something that assumes the role of somewhat like the man of the household, right? He brings groceries to make dinner for the family. That's a very, again, intimate activity. And it's like he wants to insert himself as a member of the family right away. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's he's very quickly escalating things in this relationship and and anybody who knows this case knows that this is a critical point and his relationship with amber is one of the things that sinks him in the end and leads a lot of people to think he is guilty in this case and we're going to talk a lot about this you're probably going to get sick of hearing about amber but you wonder why why is he moving so quickly with her I don't know. I think it's an interesting psychological question because if he only wanted a one night stand, he had that. In fact, I believe they had sex the first time on their first date. And subsequently, they had obviously slept together a couple more times. And so I think, like I said, we're going to talk about this more, but clearly this is not a one night stand for him. This is not just about having sex with this woman he is establishing something deeper right and he doesn't just cook dinner that one night remember he spends the night picks up amber's daughter and then the next day when amber gets home scott's actually making them dinner again and afterwards the three of them went and picked out a christmas tree together and brought it back to the fry home Again, picking out a Christmas tree with someone you just met a couple weeks ago, that's probably an activity she'd done with her daughter year after year. There's probably traditions wrapped up in that. But here, he inserts himself as going with the family to go pick out a Christmas tree. You know what this reminds me of? And this is going to sound weird. This reminds me of a Hallmark Christmas movie. And as you know, (laughs) I watched a lot over the last month. But this is essentially the timeline for a Hallmark Christmas movie right? The person comes back to the small town that they left to go make a name for themselves. They're there four weeks before Christmas where they see their old boyfriend or or new flame. You know, I guess it'd be new flame in this case because they don't even have that much history. And then they very quickly develop a relationship. And then at some point they go and they find a Christmas tree and they fall in love by Christmas. I mean, that's what this feels like, this sort of false, fake, thing and i just have to wonder if he's doing all this on purpose that he recognizes that sort of if he gives her this fairy tale this whirlwind romance he can 
I don't know, get as much as he wants to out of it because she won't think to ask questions. Yeah, that's very possible. And so they don't just bring home the Christmas tree. They start decorating it together. And it's while they were decorating the tree that Amber asked Scott if he had ever been married or had ever been close to being married. Let me stop there for just a second before I say Scott's answer. They are doing such intimate things together. And this is the first time they even discuss whether there's been past marriages. You know, obviously, that just shows you how little they know about each other. Scott says no. He's never even been close to being married. And Amber also asked Scott if he had children or had ever been close to having children. Despite Scott's wife being about seven or eight months pregnant at this point, Scott said no. Just a couple of days later, on December 6th, Sean Sibley received a call from another friend, Mike Almasari who said he knew someone by the name of Scott Peterson, and he assumed it was the same person, but the Scott Peterson that Mike knew was married. Extremely upset, Sibley called Scott and confronted him. Scott repeatedly denied being married. Scott phoned Sibley about an hour after their conversation, and Scott was, quote, sobbing when he left a message on Sibley's voicemail, and he said, quote, I'm sorry I lied to you earlier. I had been married. It's just too painful for me to talk about. Call me back. Eventually, Sibley and Scott spoke uh, later that day, and apparently Peterson was sobbing hysterically through that conversation. Yeah, and so just returning to this, I feel like as we walk through the timeline of this case and we meet Scott Peterson and we learn more about him, one of the things we're doing is we are sort of examining the psychology of Scott Peterson because one of the things that's going to become important as we move forward in this is if Scott's telling the truth about various things, his emotional reaction to Lacey's disappearance, and some of that gets chalked up to well, as we've talked about time and time again, that different people react to loss in different ways. And so it's not necessarily a big deal if somebody is stoic versus sobbing uncontrollably. But the thing I think that's interesting about Scott Peterson and that you can see very early on in this story is how easily and how well he lies. He's a very good liar. Doesn't mean he's a murderer, but he's a very good liar. And he lies to Sean Sibley and to Amber Fry with... Complete ease. It's just the total ease. He, he's just completely at ease doing it. And to the point, uh, he would have been a fantastic actor because he's able to generate emotion to back it up. He's not just saying the words. I mean, he's sobbing hysterically. He is really selling this idea that he's very upset. And I think Sean Sibley buys it completely. And... You see that she also testifies, or maybe I mentioned that she testified earlier, but when she's testifying about this encounter, she bought this 100%. She had no inclination that Scott was lying to her, and when he asked her to allow him to be the one to tell Amber, she, she agreed that she would let him do that. So that was December 6th, 2002. On December 7th, 2002, 
Peterson began looking for a boat. Probably worth stopping there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, the timeline we noted is important here. You know, you mentioned earlier that who who knows what's going through his mind, except that he moves purposefully and quickly in his relationship with Amber. And who knows if he was going to look for a boat, but I think it's very interesting that on December 6th, he gets called out for being married. He quickly comes up with a lie, says, you're right, I'm not going to lie about it. I was married, but she's no longer in my life. And then the very next day, he gets a boat. And the boat obviously factors into what the prosecution thinks, um, what the prosecution think Scott used to help carry out Lacey's murder. Right. And it doesn't stop with his search for a boat. The next day, on December 8th, 2002, internet search was made on the home laptop of the Peterson family with the terms boat plus ramp plus Pacific, also boat plus ramps plus Watsonville plus Pacific, and San Francisco Bay plus boat plus ramp. Also, websites were accessed relating to the Berkeley Marina, the Central San Francisco Bay, the Susian Bay, and related nautical charts. That night, December 8th, someone used the home laptop to access websites for the San Francisco port, the United States Geological Survey's velocity maps for currents in Central San Francisco Bay, and other sites with navigation and nautical charts. A couple of image files were also viewed, which were linked to web pages on bay currents. The image file showed an enhanced map view with the tip of Brooks Island and the surrounding area. And the nautical charts pertained to California and Mexico waterways. So, Brett, do you know about Scott's background with respect to boats? Did he know how to boat? Did he often go boating? Did he rent boats before he gotten a boat? How often had he boated before December 8th, 2002? Well, I think one thing that people have said in the past that I don't think is true is that Scott was not a fisherman. I think Scott actually was a fisherman. He wasn't a very good fisherman. We'll talk about that later. But it's my understanding that he had gone fishing before and that he enjoyed fishing, as as we mentioned in what would become very ironic. He and Lacey's first date was on a deep sea fishing excursion. So I don't think it's it's not the case that the man had never been in a boat before and he'd never been fishing before until this. And then all of a sudden, he owns a boat and he's going fishing. And how, how convenient. He had done it before, but nevertheless, I think the timing, the timing is interesting given what happens. And what are, for people who may not boat, what's the purpose of having velocity maps for currents and nautical charts? Is that something normal that a someone who is going deep sea fishing or just normal fishing need access to? Do you check the currents before you go fishing? I mean, I'm not the world's greatest fisherman. <laughs> I realize this comes as a surprise 
to most people. But I will say, on the times that I have gone fishing, I have never, I have never done this. I guess it's possible that you would need to know this information if you were a really serious fisherman. I would note, however, Scott doesn't even have a boat yet. So it's not like he's planning to go fishing the next day and he wants to make sure he's in the right current so he can get the right fish or so he doesn't run into an island or whatever. Uh, Whatever the possible reasons would be that he would do this. And obviously, those of you out there who are more have more information on fishing, I would love to hear your thoughts. On, on this information obviously a boat ramp looking for a boat ramp would be something normal you would do if you're planning on going fishing you got to find a place to put in the boat but like i said he doesn't even own a boat yet he just started looking for a boat the day before and he's already seemingly planning a a boating outing and doing it in a very detailed way right and i'd like to note that he gets confronted by sean sibley about the previous marriage. And he says to Sean, let me tell Amber. But he doesn't tell Amber. Instead, for the next two days, he looks for a boat and searches nautical maps. It's not until December 9th, 2002, that Scott told Amber he had lied to her and that things would be easier if she never wanted to see him again. Crying, Peterson said he lied about being married and that it was less painful for him to let people think that he was never married rather than to tell them the truth. That being, he had lost his wife. Peterson explained that the upcoming holidays would be the first without his wife. Amber thanked Scott for sharing the information with her since it was clearly so difficult for him to talk about. Scott told Amber that she was, quote, amazing. Given his emotional state, Amber asked Scott if he was sure he was ready for a relationship with her. And Scott said, quote, absolutely. That same day, Scott paid $1,400 cash for a boat. So we're talking about the psychology of his actions. By starting off a confession with, you, you would be better off if you never see me again. It turns, I mean, this is like a classic example of switching the burden on someone, right? He's the one who lied, but by saying, you know, you're better off. I only care about you because I'm a terrible person. You don't need me. People typically want to save someone else. And when someone shows that vulnerability and he looks like he is just absolutely in pieces and broken up, she kind of turns into the caretaker. And you see her response is one of a caretaker. And whether Scott knew he was doing this or not, he executed it very well because Amber seemed to walk straight into his trap saying, no, I'm here for you. And she's the one who says, are you ready for a relationship with me? Not the other way around. He didn't have to get her to commit. She's asking him to commit. Yeah, I mean, Scott, he's he's a master manipulator. He really is. I mean, his his ability to manipulate Amber is impressive. Uh, you know, I mean, I hate to put it that way, but it is. He's He's got it down, and I'm sure he's done this before. And a lot of you guys out there listening to this, you have heard this before. You have been in relationships where your significant other, man, woman, or whatever, has done this to you, has has put you in this position where you're the one who should be angry, you're the one who should be upset, you're the one who should be demanding things, and it gets flipped on you to where all of a sudden you feel guilty 
about the fact that you're upset with this person. And that's what he did. He presented this to her in the perfect way to ensure the outcome that he wanted. And he got exactly what he wanted. Not only was she not upset, she was, you know, praising him for, for coming to her and opening up to her and telling her this thing that was obviously so difficult for him to talk about. I mean, it's, it's something else, but he, he pulls it off. Right. And a couple days later, on December 11th, Scott accompanied Amber and her daughter to a birthday party. Again, stepping into that role of a family member, of being very committed. They're acting like a family already, going as a family unit to someone's birthday party. And on December 14th, Scott arrived at Amber's home and greeted her with a dozen red roses. He said he hoped she had more vases and that he pulled out two two dozen pink roses. I mean, talk about grand gestures, Brett. <laughs> three dozen <laughs> roses is, is a lot. Of, I don't know that I've ever That's gotten a lot three of roses. dozen roses at once. <laughs> um, and later that day, uh, they attended a party together. Now, back in Modesto, Lacey also went to a holiday party that day, but she went alone. And you've all seen this photo. You've all seen the sort of side-by-side photo of Lacey Peterson at the Christmas party, obviously pregnant, sitting in a chair all by herself. And then there's Scott Peterson with Amber Fry at the Christmas party. She attended with him, and you know he's sitting in her lap and looking, looking to the world, like, they're a happy couple, they're together, he introduces himself there as her boyfriend, everything's perfect. So that's December 14th, the next day, Peterson tells Fry that he is going on an extended trip. After that, he speaks to her on the phone on the 19th, the 22nd, and the 23rd. On the 24th, Fry did not hear from him. The next day, Christmas, Peterson talked to Fry and claimed to be in Maine with his family. He talked to her on the 27th as well, at which point he told her he was in New York and that his departure for his overseas trip had been delayed. Peterson said the airline gave him $100 and he was going to get a meal and a massage and then he would phone her back. He did so two hours later and said he was getting ready to board his flight. Fry acknowledged that she was having trust issues and apologized to Peterson for her feelings. Peterson assured her that he just needed to be more sensitive to her needs. Now, once again, Lacey Peterson disappears on Christmas Eve. So she disappears on the 24th, a day that Scott does not talk to Amber. He does talk to her the next day on the 25th, and he continues the story. I'm going overseas, you know, flights delayed. I mean, he, he even, he punctuates the story with details to make it sound more realistic. He's getting $100 from the airline because his flight's delayed. He's going to get a massage. And and would you believe it, Fry's even apologizing to him that she doubts him. She's apologizing to him, and he is reassuring her and saying, I just need to be more sensitive to your feelings. This is shy of one month of them going on their very first date. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I've been in fast-moving relationships, but I, I just note that they're they're talking on the phone as if they've been a couple for years, they're acting as a family unit, going to social functions together, picking out a Christmas tree together, decorating it together. And to Amber, 
Scott's demeanor does not change at all. Let's say Scott had nothing to do with Lacey's disappearance. That, even if you have no more feelings for your pregnant wife, the media attention that we know followed him. We know the circus that is following him. And he continues completely unaffected and undetected by Amber over the phone. Yeah, it's remarkable. It really is. And I think you're right, Alice. I think it's worth thinking about this, just stopping here. I mean, the thing we're about to talk about after this is the day of the murder, the day that Lacey disappeared. I guess some people think um, that she wasn't murdered that day, but in any event, we're getting into the 23rd, the 24th, the 25th, when something horrible happened to Lacey. And usually the story kind of starts there. There's a little bit of discussion about the fact that Scott met, you know, Sean Sibley at this at this work event and got introduced to to Amber and started this relationship and bought a boat and all this other crap. But the thing is, this behavior that he's the way he's behaving, I'll put it that way. The way he's behaving at this point. I have said a dozen times, and I've already said it in this episode, that I don't think you can judge necessarily somebody by how they react to a tragedy. Some people break down and sob. Some people become stoic and non-communicative. Some people have gallows humor. Go back to Amy Bechtel. And, you know, her husband has been haunted by what he said to the police when he called and said, I've got a missing person. Do you have a spare? Right? I mean, this is gallows humor that he's using in a very stressful situation to sort of deal with that. And people have, from that point forward, said he must have had something to do with it. And, you know, you can talk about Scott, and people do, that he, you know, occasionally used the past tense when he was talking about Lacey, as if that's significant, as if people don't do that all the time. That, I think, is useless. There's no point in worrying about that. But his behavior with Amber, after his wife is missing, I think is significant. And I think it is something you can think about. And these calls, it's one thing to cheat on your wife. You shouldn't do it. If, if you know, if any of y'all have an affair, you should stop. Those are bad, right? <laughs> I think we can all agree on that. And I think we also all agree that just because he was having an affair doesn't mean he's guilty of this crime. Just because he's cheating on his wife doesn't mean he killed her. I cannot imagine anyone reacting the way he does in this circumstance. You know, it's one thing to be having an affair behind your wife's back. Your wife, by the way, who's pregnant with your child, eight months pregnant with your child. But the moment she disappears, you would think your behavior would change. You know, either you just stop talking to Amber because you don't have time for that. You're worried about your wife. But he keeps on. He keeps on talking to her. And we're going to, as we go through this, we're going to talk about more instances in which he's calling her in incredibly inappropriate times and what is he doing and why is he doing that and what normal person would do that yeah i've not, I've nothing to say brett except that i agree with you there you know let's let's leave out how he how scott responds to the media when they come by his house um but just focus on his one interaction not one his interactions with one person amber and that staying unchanged is is chilling yeah i mean i could even imagine 
it, at some point, Scott, his excuse is he thought that if the fact he was having this affair came out, it would affect the search for Lacey. And assume, it's possible to assume that at some point when this became sort of an international news story, he believed that, right? But the sort of immediacy of this, that he's literally talking to her on the 27th, he's talking to her on Christmas, he's talking to her on the 25th, the day after, you know, and he's not, he's not coming clean at that point. He's not saying, look, I have something to tell you. And I'm sorry I have to tell you this, but I lied to you. I am married, and my wife is missing, and and I'm sorry, but I can't do this anymore. You know, I mean, just right. having sort of anything. a mea culpa. Anything, anything. Or, or like I said, if he just didn't talk to her, if he just stopped talking to her, if the 23rd was the last time he talked to her, that would be understandable because he's so focused on his wife, and he's not worried about that, you know? I don't know. And even even for self-preservation purposes, automatically on Christmas Day when he's talking to Amber, he already knows that media coverage is all over his wife's disappearance. So the likelihood that at some point Amber's going to notice him on the news is is not it's not negligible. And so I I, I can't believe that he doesn't even try to cover himself to manipulate her by coming clean with it before she finds out on the news, right? I'm not sure what his end game was on this, whether he killed his wife or not. I don't know what he was thinking would happen here. I don't know if he somehow thought she would just never notice or she'd never see the news or maybe this wouldn't get as big as it got. You know, it would all die away after a couple of days. I don't know what he thought or what he was trying to accomplish, but, and, and we'll talk about this more as we continue down this path and talk more about this case, but whatever he's doing, whatever he's doing, it doesn't work. And in fact, it, it blows up in his face royally. Um, but a lot of people have judged Scott Peterson for his relationship with Amber. And if it were just the relationship, I would, I would disagree with that. But when you see this and this part of it, then I think it becomes a little bit more significant. So we've jumped ahead a little bit. Let's go backwards. Now, December 23rd, 2002, at 5... Between 5.45 and 8.30 p.m., Scott said that he and Lacey went to Salon Salon, where Lacey's sister Amy Roca worked, and that Amy gave him a haircut. Amy Roca confirmed this to be true and added that she showed Lacey how to, quote, fun flip her hair with a straightener. What Amy does that mean, testi- exactly? <laughs> I mean, I th- I, fun flip could mean anything, but I assume what it means is you can take a straightener and, like, just curl the ends of it, um, just curl uh, the ends of your hair. So, though it's called a straightener, it's a hot iron, and so you can, like, flip your hair out or in so that it looks like you kind of blow-dried your hair, you know, to, to make it look more done up. That's awesome. what I think of Thank fun you. flip. <laughs> you're welcome i think i think all the other ladies in this uh 
who are listening probably know that. So I don't know exactly what a fun flip is, but that's probably what she means is to take the straightener to kind of flip the ends of your hair out or in. Now, Amy testified that Scott invited her over for pizza that night, but she already had plans. Amy said Scott mentioned plans to golf in the morning and offered to pick up a gift basket for their papa at a store called Vela Farms. Amy Roca told police that Lacey was wearing tan pants and a black blouse with small flowers. Scott said they then left the salon and picked up Mountain Mike's Pizza on the way home. Once home, they ate the pizza and watched Monday Night Football. And so this description of how this went down, we're now really getting into the timeline from Scott's defense. And there are a few things to note here because they are significant. And there's a reason that they're highlighted in the timeline. One of the things, the prosecution has several theories on exactly how this went down. We're going to talk about this later, how it's not necessarily important. Important is probably a strong word. It's not necessary to show some of the things that the prosecution couldn't show. You know, for instance, the prosecution's never been able to show how Lacey was killed or when Lacey was killed. That's actually, it doesn't really matter. All that matters is that Scott killed her. doesn't really matter how he did it or when he did it. But as we've said before, the best story wins. The jury wants to have some story of how this went down. And one of the theories the prosecution put forward is that Scott actually killed Lacey the night before on December 23rd. And if you believe this is a premeditated murder, you would ask yourself, why is Scott inviting Amy over for pizza if he's then planning on killing her sister? You know, why is he telling her that he's going to go play golf the next day if, in fact, he's going to be dumping a body in the bay and needs that to be his alibi? So that's one of the reasons that these little facts, where while they may seem insignificant and unimportant, become important when you start thinking about Scott's defense. Right, and from the prosecution side of why he would be inviting Amy over if, in fact, he's trying he's planning to kill Lacey that night, maybe that Amy can become a great alibi for him. We all had dinner together. We played a game of charades. We had a great time. There was no tension between the two. I left their house at 9 p.m. and, you know, everyone was happy. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Or, you know, it really works either way for him, right? If he invites her and she says no, then he can always say invited her. If he invites her and she comes over, Absolutely. If the man's planning on killing his wife, he's not going to get in a, he's not going to get into a fight with her in front of her sister. Everything's going to be wonderful. So I think that's I think that's exactly what the prosecution would say about this. And you know what? In some ways, um, by inviting Amy over for pizza, she's serving as his alibi because then she, he says that they go to Mountain Mike's and they eat pizza and it kind of plays out for the night. He says, oh, yeah, we had pizza, washed football, something that he was going to do with when, if Amy came over and Amy can say, yeah, he invited me to over to do that. Even though she was not there, she in some way kind of lends support for his story of what happened that night. Now at eight thirty that night, Lacey spoke with her mother, Sharon Roca on the phone to confirm their Christmas Eve dinner plans at Sharon's the next day. At between eight thirty and ten thirty PM, Scott said after Sharon's phone call, 
Lacey and Scott continued watching football, then they watched a movie, The Rookie. Scott estimated they went to bed around 10.30 and that Lacey wore his blue pajama bottoms to bed. You know, this is probably the thing I find the most unbelievable, that Lacey, he's eight eight months pregnant, stayed up till 10.30 to watch The Rookie. <laughs> That's what I was just <laughs> thinking. I was like, man, she stay I mean, maybe she's a night owl, but like when I was eight months pregnant, I was I was pretty much out by like six PM. <laughs> yeah. I mean I'm never I've never been pregnant and I rarely stay up past ten, so <laughs> Especially with movies. I'd anything on the couch, just generally, if I've worked out long day, if we've, you know, podcasted I I can barely stay awake for watching football and then a movie. Right. It's one thing to watch football because it's a live event. But to then, after the football's over, I'm trying to imagine trying to convince my wife, like, hey, honey, now that we've watched football, let's watch a sports movie I want to watch for the next two hours. You know, that would never that would never happen. But maybe Lacey was more into uh, sports movies than, than other people are. You know what really stuck out to me, though? The fact that... Um, you remember when we were talking about the Mary Morris murders, how you noted that you could never be able to identify your wife's purse? Here, Scott can remember specifically what Lacey wore to bed. Uh, it just seems like a very specific memory. Now, maybe it's because it's his blue pajama bottoms, but it just seems like a very specific fact to be able to tell the police about. Now, I have many sets of pajamas. I can't even tell you what I wore to to bed the night before. <laughs> yeah, it's like I've often heard that the police, when they are attempting to determine whether or not someone's statement is accurate, they ask them to tell the story, and then they ask them to tell the story again. And if the stories line up, they assume they're lying because people can't actually tell the same story the same way twice because they get details wrong and they mix things up. That's just, that's normal. That when you're remembering something, that's what happens. When you're telling a story that's been fabricated, you have these points that you're going to hit like clockwork. And, you know, once again, we're, get, we're getting into the psychology of Scott Peterson here, but you're going to see this throughout the timeline where Scott remembers details that are important for him later on because they sort of build up his his alibi but are things that are actually hard to imagine him remembering because he remembers such small details and it makes you wonder does he just remember those things does he just have you know a steel trap memory for details or did he in anticipation that he was going to be asked things, sort of create a story that has the the feeling of truth. You know, there's a word which I'm not going to try and and pronounce, or or, or maybe I will because that's what we do on this podcast. Um, verisimilitude, verisimilitude. Sure. Is that how you pronounce it, Alice? Sure. And it it's what it, it's the appearance of being real. It's the kind of details that make something that's not really true, a fictional story often, give it a sense of truth. So, you know, if you watch the movie The Blair Witch Project, there's all sorts of stuff happening in that, you know, faux documentary, the found footage film, sort of created that genre, they're not really, 
that make it seem real. Just little things that are happening that the directors and the creators of that story stick in there to make it feel real to you, the viewer, so that you get lost in the story and you believe the story. And you not only you not only believe the story, but you're able to suspend your disbelief and, and get lost in the narrative. And there are times when it seems like that's what Scott is doing. And this is a good example. I, I couldn't tell you what my wife was wearing. I can't tell you what she's wearing right now, much less what she wore to bed last night. You know, I mean, once again, I may just be a really bad husband, but. And that's why I think it's a very interesting fact. No, I don't think so. I think that's why it's really interesting that there are two specific things. I could re- I could see remembering the move you watch, but the pajamas is such a specific thing that, you know, oh, well, if you guys went to bed that night, what did she wear? To have prepared a stock answer of the blue pajama bottoms. That's what she wore. Right. You obviously didn't kill her that night if you know what she wore to bed, right? Right. And more, I'm like, if you knew what she wore to bed, that's kind of strange. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. And I think a a good liar knows when to not know things. You know, <laughs> they know when to say, I have no idea. You know, Alice, we, just last week, we did this episode with the colonel in the Maura Murray case, the one who gave permission to Bill Roush so he could go search for Maura. And the thing that made me believe him more than anything else in our conversation was the fact that he did not remember the things that you would expect him not to remember. Right. You know, he wasn't trying to sell this story to us like, oh, you can absolutely believe me because I remember exact. I remember the exact day. You know, it was a Tuesday. I had just had, you know, a, a fried pork chop with brown gravy, right? Like he didn't add all these facts that there's no way he would actually remember. In fact, he had forgotten the things or never knew the things that you would expect him not to know. And I think Scott... He almost remembers too much. He's almost, and not almost, I think he is too good. He's too good when he's telling this story. And one more thing, you know, I know we're diving into psychology and we're supposed to be neutral at this point, but I'd like to know that if this is a lie, if it's a lie about what she wore to bed, even if he didn't kill her, even if he's making this up, I think it's interesting he chooses to say it's his blue pajama bottoms because implicitly the listener is thinking how close they are. Now, it is not weird, by the way, for anyone who's thinking it's weird for Lacey to be wearing uh, men's pajama bottoms. When you're that pregnant, nothing fits. And I regularly wore my (laughs) husband's pants. So that's not strange. But the fact that she's wearing his pajama bottoms brings the closeness of them together right they're so close that she that he is happy to let her wear his pajama bottoms that she feels comfortable enough to wear his pajama bottoms they are a couple they are one they are a unit this is not someone that i could possibly kill right he's already kind of if this is a lie like i don't know um he's inserting this implicit we are one into the description of what she's wearing and you're going to see more of that as we continue to talk about this timeline we're going to stop for now because the next day is december 24th and that's the day so next time we will go through that part of the timeline we should finish that the next time and and hopefully start to get into some of the the prosecution side of this story now once again i mean this trial went on for months, months and months and months. And there is a lot to talk about. So I hope you guys 
will bear with us. I know we're going to spend a lot of time on this case, but this case, it's up there. You know, we spent four weeks on Michael Peterson, which frankly didn't have as much, I think, as, as this story. In some ways it did, in some ways it didn't. Uh, and we're going we're going to sort of ping off of that case a lot when we talk about Michael Peterson, because I think there's some interesting distinctions between that case and this case. You guys know how we came down on that one, and you'll see how we come down on this one. But there's some interesting similarities, and there are some interesting distinctions. We have probably already gotten some things wrong or irritated people. We tend to do that, even though we're, we're early on. As I mentioned earlier, if you want to reach out to us, prosecutorspod at gmail.com, at prosecutorspod on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We are on Patreon. Some of you are watching us on YouTube. Hello, YouTube folks. Drop some comments. Can't wait to, to read them. Check out our store. Buy something. Proceeds will go to the Cold Case Research Institute. But we really want to hear what you guys think about this case. This case was a huge request and tons of people requested this case. And once we get into the trial, we are going to start talking about some decisions that were made by the prosecution and the defense, some decisions by the judges, the composition of the jury. If you have questions about that, if there are specific aspects of this case that you would like us to touch on at some point, either in this case, if we haven't finished uh, recording it or in a follow-up, let us know. We would be happy to do that. Well, Alice, I think that's all we have for today. Is there anything else you want to add before we sign off? That's it, except come back for uh, the very important day of Christmas Eve 2002. Yeah, we got so much to talk about. But until then, I'm Brett. And I'm Alice. And we are the Prosecutors. got this word that I'm supposed to call you today and I don't know that I can pronounce it. <laughs> I don't think you can pronounce it. Do you know which one I'm talking about? <laughs> or are you just assuming that I can't pronounce it? Is it the... <laughs> did I pronounce it right? Is it the what? Exactly. What did I... you say? I don't know. I just made noises. <laughs> <laughs> I figured that was as okay. close as I was going to get.
Okay, ready to do this? Born ready. Born ready. That's why I'm yawning. <laughs> you sound fired up today. <laughs> you know what? Vacation's exhausting. I know, vacations are exhausting. Really exhausting. heard part one of the six-part series the prosecutors did on Scott Peterson. To listen to parts two through six, click on the links in the show notes. I'll be taking next week off as well, but Apple Premium and Patreon subscribers will of course get their bonus episode on Monday, the first Monday of every month, like always. I love you guys, and I hope you're having an amazing holiday season.